social social identity. Uh, you're gonna have to explain ontological security. You're gonna have to explain what that means. Okay. I don't. I don't know what social identity theory is. Okay. I can do that. Nor do I know what ontological means. Figured figured as much. Is it the same as epistemological? No. What about deontological? Also not not the same. But but it's good to know these words at least. It's like. Um, there's this YouTube channel that I watch of a, a, a musician, a big pianist, and he has this thing where he like plays like a hundred songs like you've heard before, but like don't know the name of. And all these like you know Chopin pieces or whatever. It's kind of like that. Like you've heard these terms before, you just have no idea what they mean. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Hi everyone, welcome back to Cheap Talk. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William and Mary, and joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague Marcus Holmes. Hey, Marcus. What's going on, Jeffrey? How are you today? Uh, hey, Marcus, let's talk about some uh, international relations stuff. The big, the big topic I wanted to talk about today was this uh, leak of U.S. intelligence information mm-hmm. on Discord. And for those, for the old people, the old people in the audience, uh, Discord is a chat system popular with gamers. This is how this is how the Washington Post describes it in all of its articles. It's like that's true, though. It's popular yeah, with gamers. It's a, it's, it's, it's a chat service popular with gamers. Yeah. I guess maybe we could talk a little bit about what information has come out as part of sure. this big leak of information and and uh, maybe a little bit about the story of the leaker who uh, we now we now know a lot about. Um, yeah. He was arrested a couple of days ago as we as we talk. Yep. You know, the, the Washington Post has been all over this and I'll um, I'll post a link to their kind of hub article that describes all the stuff that's come out of this this tranche of documents. So the leaker here is a guy who was a member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard, and he basically posted a bunch of documents that he had access to through his work on Discord for a small group that he was talking to. And I think it came up as part of like a like a Minecraft Discord or something. Right. There is some sort of game that they were playing and talking yeah. to one another. And they, it's a small group of people, evidently. Like they kind of know each other and it's like 20, 20 people or something like that. Yeah. That's what I read. So, but a pretty damaging leak, like a lot of, a lot of information uh, that, that came out here that the, the Washington Post, among other news organizations, has taken a look at and analyzed. And so we're kind of seeing the, the leak come out in the paper over, over days and days as they, as they analyze this information that they found online. So just a few highlights. As you know, this podcast is very interested in Chinese spy balloons. And so... It was of interest to see that apparently there were more balloons than we knew about that the U.S. intelligence community had kind of tracked uh, over U.S. assets, um, not just over the continental United States, but uh, over U.S. military assets. Four additional Chinese spy balloons mentioned in some of these documents and uh, also more information on the surveillance capabilities of the Chinese spy balloons. Turned out uh, lots of surveillance capabilities on these balloons. So that's that's potentially interesting. There's some information about a quote, supersonic spy drone unit, which I don't know what that means. Supersonic. I'm not sure, but it sounds, sounds kind of, kind of scary. It's not, I mean, it sounds kind of cool. Supersonic, you know, uh, but, but anyway, uh, uh, more information about Chinese spy capabilities and, and how this could be used in a potential conflict with Taiwan or the United States. Lots of information about Ukraine, Russia. One piece of information I didn't know, apparently Egypt planned to sell rockets to Russia to to be used by Russia as part of its invasion of Ukraine. And uh, there was some attempt by Egypt to keep this fact secret from the United States. But the U.S. found out through intelligence means 
and pressured Egypt not to make these sale, to make this sale. And instead, Egypt uh, ended up providing artillery to Ukraine um, in, in the conflict. So um, that seems like good foreign policy news on that front. Here's a headline. Beijing reportedly approves covert shipments of lethal aid to Russia. This is a headline from an intelligence document that was leaked. Apparently, communications from Russia's intelligence service were intercepted in which the Russians were saying that they had an agreement with Beijing to provide lethal aid, that is weaponry, to Russia for use in the conflict. And this was fairly recent, it seems. And it wasn't clear from this intelligence report that any aid had actually been provided. And China insists in response to the story that it has not and will not provide, or at least not yet, provide uh, lethal aid to Russia. So maybe that never actually materialized, but um, was at least talked about. And then in, in this bunch of documents, there's a bunch of intelligence assessments, which, you know, we can talk about like how much weight we should put on these, but this is like the, the view of whatever analyst is writing this, this report. So not necessarily something that a source said, but that's something that an analyst is putting together from all kinds of sources or their general knowledge of, of the issue. And some of this is, you know, more useful than others. But so we have an intelligence assessment about the prospects for a Ukrainian offensive in the spring, um, where they said basically not great prospects for the U Ukraine to make a lot of gains in territory. They have, we have an assessment of Ukraine's lack of ammunition casting and, and artillery casting this as a pretty dire situation for Ukraine. I think we really already knew that from, from other reporting. Uh, we have some assessments of the prospects for a negotiation happening this year between Ukraine and Russia. And shockingly, the U.S. intelligence community agrees with everybody else in that there's not great prospects of this happening. We have some information on Taiwan's ability to mount an air defense in its own defense against China. And it looks like maybe not, uh, not a great capability there. Um, so lots of different kind of in individual intelligence assessments here. What's your general sense of, of this intelligence leak? You know, um, I have two different kind of reactions to this, and, and they've remained pretty consistent throughout. So uh, one of the, the things that's, that's happened, of course, is that as more documents kind of get analyzed, we learn more about, about what's going on. The early reports, you know, kind of suggested things like, you know, the United States is spying on its allies, uh, and that, you know, a lot of people sort of like shrugged their shoulders and said, we, of course we do that, like we'd be stupid not to, et cetera. So like the, the early sort of stuff um, and the late stuff, the, the more recent stuff are slightly different. But my view has kind of remained uh, the same on this throughout. And, and and that is basically that my concern here is not so much about the information um, that got leaked in the sense that I think a lot of this stuff um, we kind of either already knew or we were assumed kind of was happening, uh, but we didn't have any like great evidence for it. And, and in fact, some of these we talked about, right? So the Chinese balloon situations, I think we made the point on the podcast, you know, it's likely that this is not just a balloon. It's not only that just like you know maybe two or three balloons, but there's probably many more, right? And so the idea that we got some evidence that they actually have more more uh, there are more balloons out there than we than we had evidence for, like that is not really all that that surprising to me. And I think most of this stuff I look at and, I'm, and I think to myself like, okay, you know, it's it's interesting that it's out there and that we have some confirmation or at least some of the the documents can kind of confirm things. But I don't see a lot here that sort of like knocked me down and I said like, wow, like that is very surprising. I did not know that. Uh, that changes the way I think about the Ukraine situation. That changes the way I think about China, Taiwan, uh, et cetera. So my and I don't I don't want to be like, man, this is this is no big deal. I think it is a big deal for the second point that I want to make, which is my concern here is much more about the the sort of assets 
the 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 people and apparatus involved in collecting intelligence and what it might mean for those folks who are doing the work to collect this stuff and what what you know sources might have been compromised and, and so on and so forth. So I don't think the sort of headlines about you know, what Egypt may or may not have wanted to send to Russia or what China may or may not be doing, or the fact that Ukraine is not going to have a great job in the spring. You know, I think these are things that are that are interesting, but not all that groundbreaking. My concern really is more about what it means for intelligence moving forward and also the, the folks who are, you know, using sources right now that might be compromised by this and, and not be able to use them in the future or, or maybe even far worse consequences than that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And maybe we, we can talk more about kind of the the damage that comes from something like this in terms of the intelligence sources and methods. But I think some of the information here is pretty interesting. I mean, the whole Egypt thing, I think, is is a good a good news story, you know, in the sense that the U.S., it seems like this is the story, that the U.S. identifies a problem that, that Egypt <laughs> right. is going to kind of secretly be providing weapons to, to Russia and, uh, you know, puts on take steps to try to head that off and, and make sure that that doesn't happen. That seems like potentially uh, something that the administration might not be, might not be that disappointed is out there in the, in public knowledge now that suggests that it's doing a good job kind of defending Ukraine in, in its own way, um, having Ukraine's back on, on these issues. And then the other, the other pieces they hear that I think is pretty interesting is Russia's assessment that China had agreed to provide weapons because as we've talked about before on this podcast, that is a big deal. If, if Russia, if China starts being a key supplier for Russia uh, in terms of its its weapons in in this conflict, then that uh, solves a big problem that Russia has. And so this story is potentially worrying there. And one aspect of the story is China wanting to keep this all very secret. And so that you know raises the possibility that this might be, might be going on, and we wouldn't necessarily know about it. Um, and I'm sure it's something that, of course, everyone was already thinking that if this aid was provided, it would there might not be a public announcement about it. Uh, but it's clearly something that the U.S. intelligence community is focused on trying to understand where are the sources of support for for Russia's efforts. Yeah. Did did you find that one surprising? I did, especially because I mean, I, and we've talked about this before too. Like, I am always shocked that China would be willing to to do this, uh, potentially do this, provide lethal weapons to, to Russia, because it just strikes me as like the costs of that are so are so high, right? So like, let's say China's doing this, you know, wants to keep it under the table, doesn't want anybody to know, they get this, you know, sort of secret arms deal with, with Russia. Um, you know, China knows that leaks are a thing. The United States knows that leaks are a thing. Russia knows that leaks are a, th- a thing. It strikes me as incredibly dangerous for China to be doing this with the knowledge that one day it might turn out that people find out that they were providing these weapons to, to Russia. And because we've talked about how the Russia-China relationship is not exactly, you know, uh, the most amicable one, it's more of like a, an alliance of convenience than anything else. Um, if, if Russia ends up continuing to do poorly in this, in this war and the settlement like ends up being non-favorable to, to Russia, there are theoretically some costs that China would have to pay or will pay in the future for supporting the, the Russian regime. So it strikes, it's surprising to me that they would do this at all. It's also surprising to me that they would, you know, uh, if they're going to, if they're going to do it, try to rely on this sort of covert secret deal to make it happen when, you know, those things often get, get uncovered. It's, it's, it's similar. I was looking at one of the, um, the Egypt, Russia sort of like arms trades and, and jets trades that have occurred 
uh, in the past. And some of those that, that were tried to keep secret as well. And then it got out there that, you know, Russia was sending, you know, selling Egypt to uh, uh, jets. And so they had to, like, basically do a mea culpa. These things have a, a way of getting out. And so if if China wants to support Russia and they want to provide lethal weapons, um, that's that would be surprising to me that they would have that as their calculus. And that's a decision that they're going to make. But I think trying to do it covertly uh, ultimately has a very high chance of backfiring, as it apparently did here. Now, we should mention, right, we're not... We both agree we're on the same page that we're not sure that this actually happened, right? This is intelligence suggesting that there was this potential agreement, but it's unclear as to what the agreement actually was and what, what sort of promises were made, right? Yeah, and the, the U.S., in response to this this leak, a senior administration official said, quote, We have not seen evidence that China has transferred weapons or provided lethal assistance to Russia, but we remain concerned and are continuing to monitor closely. So it, it sounds like... You know, there hasn't been confirmation of this from other sources, uh, and this is just an intercepted phone call or some kind of communication by Russian intelligence saying that they had this agreement. Uh, but the actual flow of weapons, it looks like we don't have evidence of. I do think it's kind of interesting if you go back um, and look at statements that were made by the Pentagon uh, in February. So, right, so like the, the, this document or this, this source evidently was back in February. The United States was publicly making a lot of like sort of uh, uh, signals to China, warning them, don't ship arms to Russia. Right. And again, we, we, we right. touched on this in a previous. So like that sort of leads credence to the idea that this was at least the United States was worried that this was real because they're making public statements encouraging China not to this, try to deter them from doing this, um, which would suggest that maybe that intelligence was actually accurate or at the very least they were worried that it was going to happen. And so they made this this public back then. Yeah, well, and this goes to always the problem of evaluating the veracity of intelligence and assessments is that when you get this kind of information and then policy snaps into action to try to deal with it, like putting more pressure on China and telling them not to uh, not to do this or there'll be consequences. And if that works, then it looks like some of the intelligence assessments were wrong right. because it was saying that they were about to do it and then they never did. But was it in the intelligence that was wrong or was it the intelligence a a agencies did a good job rallying policy to to make a change. Precisely. So it's, it's hard to know. Another piece of this that I thought was interesting uh, from another document in this batch assessed. So this is a U.S. intelligence assessment, not a particular source saying this, but there was an assessment that Beijing would view a, quote, significant Ukrainian attack within Russia using U.S. or NATO weapons as indicative that Washington was directly responsible for escalating the conflict and possibly is further justification for China to provide Russia with lethal aid. So what's interesting about this is we're always talking about how the U.S. is playing this kind of weird game of trying to give enough support to Ukraine that they can win, they can make progress, but without giving so much support to Ukraine that it is escalatory and results in some kind of response by Russia against NATO. But one of the pieces of this that we haven't paid a lot of attention to is how the U.S. support could actually lead China to jump in on the side of Russia. And that's what this is kind of calling out, that, that maybe one of, one of China's red lines here is it looks like the U.S. is giving enough support to Ukraine that they're able to strike back within Russia. And in that case, maybe China would feel more willing, feel more free to give their own lethal support to, to Russia on the other side. Yeah, and that's a little concerning. I mean, that that if, if that is actual uh, good good intelligence and that is a, a red line, then U.S. policymakers are, are going to you know, very clearly take that seriously. Otherwise, we might be in some type of 
you know, really broad conflict that we that we don't want. So I agree with you on that one. I think that is uh, very interesting, a little scary that 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 red line would would exist. Although it makes sense from China's perspective, because, you know, if if the United States is, is sort of pushing the envelope and they might they're looking for reasons to maybe get involved again, and it sort of calculates, I don't understand and I don't agree with. But if that is their their sort of rationale, then something like this would make a lot of sense. But it also kind of points to a benefit to Ukraine from the U.S. showing restraint in terms of the provision of of uh, support to Ukraine. That is, if the U.S. overdoes it and give, if the U.S. and NATO give too much to Ukraine such that they are able to strike deep into Russia, then you have the risk not only of Russia deciding to escalate through to, to attack U.S. and NATO directly, but also the chances that China kind of jumps in on Russia's side go up. Um, and this would be bad in the long run for Ukraine. So you might have the situation where Ukraine would actually be better off uh, not having these these weapons provided. And this is kind of the kind of argument that, like, you know, it, it's so hard to know that you if you're Ukraine, you'd rather just have the weapons and, and not worry right. about it. Um, right. But you could see U.S. policymakers wanting to exercise a little bit of restraint because of this kind of thing. Right. And it gets to this, this basic dilemma we've been talking about for, for a while now. It's like they we want we want Ukraine to do well. Uh, but over and over again, we're in this position where it's like, well, not too well, because then we're going to have all these other ramifications, presumably. Right. And that's that is this you know, very delicate balance that the United States and NATO, uh, you know, Europe has to has to sort of find. And, and this intelligence kind of speaks directly to that. It's like it's like one of the first times on paper you see the notion that China is like actively paying attention to this and indeed might have in their in their you know, leadership minds a line that if it gets crossed, changes this conflict considerably. Yeah. But I mean, again, so this is an intelligence assessment. So right. this just means that some intelligence. It's like analysts, Jeff writing it down a bunch of thoughts. Right. It, it exactly. Right. Like, intelligence we, we don't know from this report what that assessment is based on. Right. And so it could be that there's source reporting that underlies this. That's quite strong. But the way this is phrased suggests this is more the analyst's judgment based on lots of information, but nothing specific that says, oh, we have a we have a spy who talked with the the, the president who, and this was his thinking, right? We it doesn't sound like that, so right. it's hard to know how much weight to to put on something like this. The world of intelligence is incredibly complicated. So, what do you think of the way this material was leaked, and the kind of story of the individual? I I found it very difficult to to understand, um, and and. One of the reasons is that if you think about previous leaks that were similar in nature, and I can think of, let's say, I, I'll just throw out three that kind of come to mind um, in thinking about like what this is kind of similar to, right? So in 1971, around that time, the so-called Pentagon Papers uh, gets, gets kind of leaked or published. And this was basically um, a military analyst who was working on a, a government report. So he's in government, working on a report about uh, the Vietnam War. And part of this report is the United States had been doing lots of things in Laos and Cambodia. Basically, the war was expanding to Laos and Cambodia, and the, and the U.S. government was um, not admitting that, like not telling the public this, and we were doing all these different operations. And, you know, this is 1970, so there's, internet doesn't exist, Twitter doesn't exist. It's easier in some, some respects to kind of do things out, you know, in, in the Asia-Pacific region because you didn't have reporting that was, that was, you know, sort of could take seconds to get from place to place. So he, he decides... This is this is really bad for the United States. The government is kind of covering this up, and he leaks um, or goes to the New York Times, I think, with the Pentagon report papers. The government actually sues. It goes to the Supreme Court. It's a whole it's a whole thing. 
But basically, this this gets out in the 1970s, and support for it, it completely changed the trajectory of, of support for both the Vietnam War and everything that uh, the United States was doing in the region. But in that particular example, you had a person who took a principled view. I see what's going on. The American public needs to know about it. And so I'm going to I'm going to uh, leak these papers and leak this report, or at least parts of the report to let the United States you know, population know what's going on. Fast forward a couple decades and you have uh, Edward Snowden in like the early 2000s, uh, who's a contractor working for the NSA, I think. And his view is that the United States is doing a lot of sort of surveillance and quote unquote spying. Um, on Americans that, that he, they were allowed to do because of the Patriot Act that got passed after September 11th. And basically, he he sees a lot of sort of data collection of, of communications and cell phones and things like that and says the United States population needs to know about this. And so he leaks a lot of documents about various programs uh, that were, were in place. And most people listening to the podcast probably know the story by now, but he had to go to uh, – originally in Hong Kong and then went to Russia – um, and that's where he is now. And again, there, Edward Snowden, to some people, is a hero, to some people, is a traitor. But his sort of stated reason for doing this was that he, again, had this sort of principle stance that what uh, is going on here is not right. The American public need you know to know this. Uh, and you should have you know knowledge that the government – it's not like they're spying on your cell phone necessarily. They're not listening to your phone calls. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. But you know, with enough information uh, that they had at their fingertips, they could sort of learn a lot about you. And, and his view is that the American – Oh, didn't know this, and he wanted he wanted to expose it. And then the third example is WikiLeaks, which is a broad kind of organization, um, and it has a, has a long history. But their their view is that we're going to have anonymous people that have access to secure documents, um, give them to us, and then we're going to post them online, and we're basically going to going to show the world things that we don't think should should you know be covered up. We don't think that that there's you know a reason for governments to be hiding things from their citizens, right? And again, there, the principle is more information is better. Government shouldn't be hiding things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in all three of these examples, you have a, a sort of principle stance that has something to do with either like the First Amendment or this just general notion that the government shouldn't be keeping things from its, its citizens. In this case, it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. What we've learned about this, this young man is that he was on this Discord server and, you know, had access to documents. And it seems like, you know, sort of wanted to share those documents with his, his friend group originally, right? It was more about sort of like the, his, his social identity within uh, this sort of con- the confines of this Discord server and the games that they play or whatever. And it was more about, you know, maybe it's showing off or maybe it's saying like, hey, look how cool this is. I have access to these documents, whatever it was. But it wasn't like a principled stance on, you know, the U.S. government is doing something bad and we're going to release this. It wasn't, you know, we need to change the way that security clearances work uh, and have reform, which a lot of people are now saying we, we do. We can talk about that in a second. But it was, it was sort of like an unprincipled um, friendship type of, of thing, which, which makes it, you know, really striking to me. Um, and it's striking that, you know, he, the, the documents that he chose – uh, were ones that, on the one hand, you know, sort of like told us a lot about what we already know. Maybe these are actually the only documents he had access to. I'm not really sure. But my reaction to the to the young man who did this is that this is an unprincipled kind of selfish move in contrast to the other three examples, which were very much about. Now, you might not agree with what they did. I don't agree with what they did, but at least some of them. Uh, but you know, not about the self, but about the Americans knowing, you know, what's going on. So I know it struck me as a very odd uh, case for that reason. Most of these cases you see people, you know, taking sort of a principled route. Did you, did you have any reactions to the, the, the gentleman yourself? I just have an issue with comparing Daniel Ellsberg 
and the Pentagon Papers to like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks. Ah. Um, well, they're they're both leaks, are they not? They're leaks, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, I I don't know. It's 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 hard for me uh, to to kind of. I, I think that some of these leaks were designed to damage the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little bit of a different motive um, than, you know, kind of the public has a right to know, the, uh, be aware of these things that the United States is doing. I think that's a little bit of a different, a, well, here, a different approach. I agree with that. But here, here's what I would say. Like in all of the examples, whether it's Assange or Ellsberg or whoever, they're doing something from like an international uh, or domestic politics, like purpose, like whether the purpose is we need to shed light on this because it's wrong, or we want to like hurt the United States domestically or internationally or whatever. Usually, the the leaks are done for some sort of like reason that's external to the individual, and it's about sort of like society and about domestic or international politics. What's striking to me about this is that seemingly there's none of that here. Like I was expecting when this when this kid was you know arrested for him to say, yeah, what the United States is doing is terrible, and I wanted to show about the corruption and you know Ukraine or whatever. But we didn't get that, and so and so that's the only sort of parallel that the, the three that I mentioned kind of have in common is that for better or for worse, they did it for a reason that has something to do with politics. This seemed kind of apolitical, which is which is strange. Yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I think yeah. in the kind of list of spies if you go back through like i think the most common motive for for leaking information is money and which is uh, maybe more of an internal uh kind of kind of thing i don't think that's um the favorite motive of spy organizations i think like if the cia is trying to recruit uh uh some kind of someone from a foreign government they would prefer that that person believe in like you know, the mission and want to support the U.S. as their motivation. But uh, I think frequently money is, is the is the real issue. And here, maybe what's different is like there was no attempt to to monetize this or to to give it to a foreign intelligence service, maybe that we know of. Right. I mean, right. it could be that 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 was part of this here, that this was a this was like a pro-Russian discord, at least in terms of some of the some of what's come out about the discussion there. So I think you know, maybe there was some feeling that what the U.S. was doing and supporting Ukraine was was not the right was not the right move. But but this is the kind of thing I think where Discord and other tools like it kind of changed the way we think about leaks because I'm sure that this sort of thing happened frequently in the past where some some kid at uh, who's in the Air National Guard sees some piece of intelligence and like takes it home to show their friend, you know, and, and then their friend's like, wow, it's really cool. You have access to that. And that person feels really good about themselves for a few minutes, but it's not on discord. It's just like, then the, then the person throws it out or gets rid of it. Right. And it doesn't, it isn't so easy to spread it to every corner of the internet. Right. And it doesn't become this big public leak. So I think the fact that people socialize this way more and more has an impact on the damage that you can cause by, you know, just wanting to show something cool to your Right. If, if again, we, there's, it's still early in the story. We don't know. Maybe we'll, we will find out that there is some Russia connection and he is a spy or something like that. We just, we just don't know at this point, but if the, the current reporting is true that he was just sort of posting this to, to show off in front of yeah. his friends, you're, you're exactly right. Like the, the problem with that is that, you know, well, first of all, it would be a problem to do it in your living room too. But it's a much bigger disruptive problem 
uh, if you put it on the internet because then, then it's just, you know, you can't control it. Like, we know this, right? It's like you put something out there. Right. I mean, we are very likely to never know if you just show your friend. Exactly. Uh, piece, exactly. Right? So I'm sure it has happened and we just, it just never got out. But, right. you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about the kind of intelligence impact of something like this and how to assess the damage that a leak like this does. And I saw a great piece by Matt Tate, who's a cybersecurity analyst. We actually talked about his work on, on the podcast before, and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. But I thought he had kind of an interesting way of, of breaking this down that I will uh, maybe riff on a little bit here. There are kind of different categories of information that is in this tranche of, it looks like, a few hundred documents. Mm-hmm. And I know the Washington Post has seen most of all of them. You can find the actual some of the actual documents online, although... You know, I don't think it's necessarily worth worth searching for. They've been summarized pretty well, the, the important ones by by the Washington Post. But some of this information is like time sensitive military information where the the impact from this, the damage from these documents is really bad, but it's mostly very short lived. Mm-hmm. So there's there are a few like maps of, say, Ukrainian air defense installations, right, that are in these documents or the schedule for Ukraine's counteroffensive. And that stuff is super damaging if Russia has it in time to act on it while it's still current. And it looks like that's not what happened here, that the documents, by the time they made it into the public domain sufficiently that someone could have acted on them, they were probably too old to give Russia a big advantage. Like the schedule of the counteroffensive, by the time it, it was released, we were at the end of the schedule. And so like uh, it's it's real impact in that way was probably limited, but this stuff is is potentially extremely damaging. And if it went directly to Russia, it would give them a big advantage in kind of a, a tactical way uh, for a short period of time until everyone wised up and made adjustments. And since this stuff is out there and we all know it's out there, presumably adjustments have been made, air defense installations have been moved, and other things have been changed such that this information is no longer damaging. So that's that's kind of one category. Another category is political analysis that uses uh, non-fragile sources. So this is basically like either intelligence assessments by U.S. intelligence uh, analysts making judgments about what other countries are doing, or it's information from a source, but the source is like not something you worry about. So one of the documents in here was an assessment of um, Hungary's prime minister Orban's speech in which he said on TV uh, that the U.S. is an enemy of Hungary. (laughs) Um, which is the kind of fun thing that he likes to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the assessment here was like, you know, this is even more aggressive than his previous statements, which is not like a super hard hitting assessment. And this is a little bit embarrassing, right? For, for like, like us hungry relations is all a little embarrassing, but it's not, I don't think it's very embarrassing, but okay. There's some analysis in here of like what it would take for Israel to get more involved on the Ukraine stuff and like provide more support to Ukraine. And, and it's embarrassing in the sense that, like, it makes an assessment about kind of Israeli domestic politics that, you know, if you're the ambassador, you don't want to like, have to go and explain that to, to your Israeli counterparts. Uh, okay, Jeff. But, but at the end of the day, we're all adults here, right? And, and we've talked about this. Like, the, the, the countries kind of know, like, there's a lot of spying that's going on and intelligence reports are written. Israel, you know, certainly is aware of uh, intelligence reports being written, right? So I don't think it's particularly, you know, embarrassing for for anybody, the stuff that I've seen so far, I don't think it's really all that embarrassing for anybody to have to explain away what's going on here. I think it's just embarrassing they got a leak. You know, it's just sort of like this is not um, up to American standards. Like we should not be having security information like this on the internet. That part's embarrassing, but the actual content, 
I think I think most policymakers, diplomats, leaders are kind of aware of the game that that was played with this stuff. And I'm a little skeptical that anybody's super like like red faced about the content of of the things I've seen, at least so far. You're you're probably right. I mean, it mostly just creates some awkward conversations between maybe a little awkward when they sure. when they meet up the next time. But it's not more, more it, awkward than normal. Right. But my point is, like, this is not a major deal, right? right this exactly. stuff happens, it gets leaked, it's a little bit embarrassing for a conversation or two, and then you move on, right? The next category is military analysis. And here we have stuff that's like the U.S. take, U.S. intelligence take on what's going on in a particular region, conflict, whatever. Um, and this is less damaging in, in terms of sources and methods because it doesn't necessarily reveal a particular source or a particular avenue of intelligence collection. So it's like the assessment of the analyst based on whatever it is the analyst has access to, but it's not specifically cited in the report. A lot of the the stuff that seems to be leaked were like uh, kind of daily summaries mm -hmm. of intelligence reporting throughout the community. And so it's kind of stripped of the details of the sourcing. And it's more just like, here's the bottom line assessment of the intelligence community. And that stuff is less damaging in terms of sources and methods because it's harder to kind of point to a particular intelligence collection method that led to that assessment. Where it can be a little bit damaging is if those kinds of assessments give an adversary real insight into U.S. views of a particular conflict. So you could imagine a situation where like knowing that the U.S. assessed that Russia had a particular capability in this in this particular area would cause Russia to say, oh, you know, the U.S. misunderstands how right. strong that unit is, right? And we can use that to our advantage. Or the assessment that Taiwan is like really not ready to deal with uh, Chinese air power uh, across the strait. Well, I mean, that's that's something that China wants to know, right? That that U.S. is the U.S. feels this way about China's air force as it puts all of the the dealings between the U.S., Taiwan, and China into into a better context for them. So that stuff can be damaging, but it's it's a little bit more of a uh, it's a little less of a direct connection between the intelligence reporting and like some kind of particular damage to U.S. methods. The the stuff that we really worry about is foreign intelligence reporting, and this is stuff that's attributed to a source. And there's plenty of it in this group of, of documents. So you have, we already talked about the intelligence report in which a Russian intelligence service communication was intercepted. So it, it, in this report, it's, it's attributed to signals intelligence, which means intercepted communication could be email, text, phone call, whatever. And the, we have some intercept of the Russian intelligence service saying, we have a deal with China to provide weapons, but they don't want it to be to be out there. That's the kind of thing that's potentially very damaging because it suggests that the U.S. has some avenue of capturing this information and the people who they were capturing it from may not have been aware of that. So it's mm -hmm. possible that the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service didn't realize that the U.S. had access to this method of communicating. Maybe this was what they thought was a secure method and they know, okay, well, how many times did we communicate this bit of information back to headquarters? Two times. One time we used WhatsApp. Another time we use this other thing. So one or two of the, one or both of those is compromised and we need to stop using it. And that has a potentially big impact because it, you know, it means that the U.S. loses access to that information in the future. The same thing happens in a kind of more uh, unpleasant way with human source reporting. So there was at least one document in this, in this batch that is very clearly a, a report from a human source. And the, the danger there, of course, is that that source will be immediately identifiable to whoever's involved uh, in, in that issue. And so hopefully the United States has already taken action to protect that source, mm -hmm. removing them from whatever situation they were in, getting them to a different country or whatever. 
uh, whatever's necessary to protect them and their family because what happens next is they're arrested and sometimes worse. And so when this kind of thing leaks, uh, I think the first action by the U.S. intelligence community is always to figure out what sources are implicated here. Can mm-hmm. we protect them? Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes that's possible and sometimes it's not. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that's a, a big issue because it means not only somebody's life is on the line, uh, but also the access to that information is gone. Uh, right. and, and it has to be gone. Even if the other side doesn't know who it is, we kind of have to assume that when that source's reporting is leaked, um, if it's specific enough, just to protect the source, we have to pull them out. Right. I, I was, you took the words out of my mouth. I was going to say, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a name and a street address on a document. I mean, there's like through triangulation, you can often, you know, sort of figure out like who a potential source is based on what you're seeing in this, in this leaked report. And that's, and that's really dangerous. I mean, and this is, this is also, you know, one of the major differences between this leak and something like, like Snowden's leak, right? So, you know, whether you like what Snowden did or not, at least he did take some care, allegedly, to remove human sources from the, what he revealed to the, to the public. Like he released you know, information about these, these data mining programs and stuff like that, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything where you could uh, easily, anyway, sort of like target a particular individual, which is not the case here. So this is, this is why this one is even more uh, troubling and, and, and in some ways quite more, more quite dangerous because there are these links either, you know, explicitly or implicitly to particular human beings that then need to be, you know, protected. Yeah, at the human level, that's true. I, I, I think at the level of intelligence collection, the Snowden leak uh, was probably tremendously damaging. In terms that's true. Of a bunch of technical things that the United States was doing that it could no longer do once that information was released because adversaries could take steps to protect themselves from that form of collection. So yeah. if the adversary knows that, the U.S. can do this certain thing with this piece of software, well, they'll stop using that software. They'll find a more secure method. And, and, and you're right that it isn't, it doesn't have to be obvious, right? Like if you're the person who's responsible for this negotiation with China and in the Russian intelligence service, like you know when that phone call was made or right. who was involved. Exactly. And it's not hard to figure out like, well, okay, how many times did we actually talk about this? let's go back over it. Let's check for leaks. Let's check all of those people and make sure that they're, they're not doing anything weird. We go back over it. And so I think that there's a strong, even if it's only circumstantial evidence, uh, uh, we have to assume that those forms of collection are now lost. Yeah. And I mean, you, Jeff, you know me, I'm a big lover of, of humans. And I think yeah. that that's, that's the, the view that I take. I mean, it has to do with, you know, the, the spy balloon. We talked about how the real danger there is if there are, you know, these, these altercations between, you know, manned aircraft and a balloon or something like that. Like this is, this is what I worry about. And I, I have so much sort of sympathy and empathy for people who are trying to gather information for good, good purposes to like prevent war or bring a war to an end and are literally putting their lives on the line to do so. Um, because if their identity gets leaked somehow, they're going to be in really big in, in big trouble. So I, I started this conversation by saying, like, I think one of the big things here is not so much the information that we learned about, you know, spy balloons in Russia and Egypt and stuff, but it's just the, the fact that there are human beings who are on the line because these documents were leaked. That's so that's so troubling. The name that I, I immediately thought of when this happened was Valerie Plain, right? The, the yeah. sort of you know situation where CIA operative was was leaked. Uh, and that was a very different situation. And we, we won't bore the listeners by going into that one in particular, although it does connect to what we talked about last time in the Iraq it war. Does, yeah. But in any case, uh, that was a case where an individual was, was, who was a, 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 you know, CIA operative got revealed and it's tremendously, you know, devastating to her and lots of other people. And so 
I am very sympathetic uh, to the people who put their lives on the line, literally, to conduct this type of intelligence. And it's, it's really sad, um, you know, when, when these things get leaked and they're, and they're put in jeopardy, both their career, but also sometimes just their, their, their lives. Yeah, I'll just, just on the Valerie Plame issue. So Valerie Plame was a, a CIA officer who uh, was involved in some of the uh, Iraq, run up to Iraq, trying to get information. And it turns out um, she was involved in get, gathering some information that cast some doubt on the U.S. story behind invading, invading Iraq. And then her, her name was leaked. And the effect of that for her career was bad, right? Because she was a CIA officer and couldn't operate in the same way. But that's less of a concern, I think, than the fact that once her name is leaked as a CIA officer, everyone in a foreign country who's had interactions with her in those countries is now a suspected spy. And so that is where the real potential danger is. It's less for Valerie, who's had a perfectly reasonable career since then. But for the people who spoke with her, interacted with her in foreign countries, who were immediately sus- suspect because of that interaction, uh, things were a lot more dangerous. So it's, it's the, the person in that position, the, the person gathering the information is the one really at risk. Yeah, totally agree. And for those that are interested that don't know much about um, this case, you could Google Valerie Plame, of course. Also, Scooter Libby is an interesting name to, to look up as well. Uh, Dick Cheney's, uh, what was he, vice, vice, the chief of staff, I guess, uh, yeah, the vice president right. chief of staff at the time, uh, who ultimately was convicted and then is, I think, Well, later, I'm sure Valerie Plame has a book about this, doesn't she? I think there's a couple of movies, too. I think there's, there's a, at least one documentary that I saw, I think it was on YouTube, though, quality was a little suspect. But there are, there are, well, I think, books and, and documentaries and various shows that have been made about it. Fair Game, How a Top CIA Agent Was Betrayed by Her Country. Yeah, it's a terrible story, you know, and it's because it was that was also just a, a largely a political uh, decision. And so, I mean, the, the story is a little bit complicated, but there was, you know, the, her husband, I think, was critical of, of the Iraq war and so on. So this was like a political sort of like motivation, um, again, which which is another example of a case where like oftentimes there's politics behind this, which is different in, in kind from what we're seeing uh, with this one. Can I ask you one other question, Jeff, because you are some something of an expert expert on this. There's been a lot of discussion uh, in the media, anyway, about why uh, I think a 21-year-old or a 22-year-old uh, National Guard Air Guardsman from Massachusetts had access to these documents in the first place. Um, and I saw some policy officials sort of defending this and saying, "No, you know, actually, uh, it is important for for lots of different people in lots of different circumstances to have access to this." And then others in Washington sort of saying, "No, no." This is an, a further indication that we need sort of reform on this. We need, you know, security clearances to be uh, reviewed. We need, we need more levels of scrutiny. You know, we don't need just everybody gets top ac- secret access to everything. Uh, this person did not need to know what was going on between, you know, Egypt and Russia and so on and so forth. So I just was wondering if you had a take on uh, whether this indicates anything to you about our kind of current system of how uh, decisions are made about who sees what information um, and if, if it does, like, what, what do you think we should be doing? Like, what is it, what is a different way of handling, uh, these types of documents? Or, or it, maybe there's not a better way of doing it, but do you have any thoughts on, on how we could be doing this better? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a strong view on it. I mean, so I noticed that I just, uh, I think today before we recorded the news broke that this, this unit, the 102nd intelligence wing based out of uh, joint base Cape Cod in Massachusetts is having its mission, quote, paused and divided among other units. So they've, they've taken the intelligence away from, uh, from this particular unit um, and distributed it elsewhere. And I think that probably makes sense. 
But I mean, there, there's a trade-off here, and we, we talked about it a little bit last time, and that the intelligence is only useful, the analysis is only useful if it gets into the hands of the people who can do something with it, right? And so there's always this tension in the intelligence community between protecting sources and methods, but also getting the information to where it can be useful for policy or military. And so we need parts of the military to be engaged in the intelligence that's coming in because it has real implications for how military planning happens, for, for uh, how units are, are formed and structured and postured and, and all of this, right? So the, the intelligence needs to be shared if it's going to be useful. But at the same time, you know, there, this particular airman like clearly wasn't a good place to put this information. And so, you know, you always have this tension. The more people know, the, the more you're getting the information out to who needs it, the more risk there is that someone leaks it. And there's this tension is never going to go away. And you see kind of post 9-11, more emphasis on information sharing. And then every time there's a leak, you, you kind of pull it back post Snowden. There was a big uh, reconsideration of like contractor access to private information, uh, to sensitive information, because th that was kind of the method that was that uh, that Snowden used to, to get to get access. So you, there's a kind of push and pull to this stuff. So I think in general, you know, we want to make sure that everyone who needs the information gets the information. But, um, you know, that clearly in this case, uh, this, this person shouldn't have had it. Yeah, and I mean, it does lead to sort of an interesting question. It's like, what what do we give up um, if we don't share information as widely? Like you, you alluded to September 11th. I mean, that was one of the things that the 9-11 the uh, report pointed at. Like, did you have these government agencies not talking to one another, and there are all kinds of silos and things like that. So that's not what you want. Are we willing as a country to put up with an occasional intelligence leak uh, precisely because it, it we need to have more people have eyeballs on these things in order to prevent terrorist attacks or to, you know, win wars and prevent wars from happening and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think a lot of people say, yes, you know, this is just the price that you pay to have uh, information sharing occur. And maybe in this particular example, it's a tough case to make that this uh, relatively young individual needed access to these things. Uh, but as a general rule, as you point out, if you're going to if you're going to have intelligence, it needs to be shared in order to be useful. And that creates a kind of kind of tricky situation. Can I mention just a couple of other uh, ways in which I think this this information is a little bit damaging that, that we hadn't we hadn't touched on yet? That yeah. we, so one is one is the kind of misinformation aspect of this. So th it looks like this information was just leaked. But then some like Russian uh, disinformation types got a hold of it and made some alterations to a particular document to yeah. make it look like Russia had suffered way fewer casualties than they have in, in, uh, in the conflict. And then that doctored, altered document was then used by Tucker Carlson in his show um, and broadcast to millions of people, right? So this is this misinformation aspect of, of this leak is an important one. And, and I think we're going to see this every time there's a leak. That people will take advantage of oh, we have leaked information that lends some credibility to now this misinformation that I'm hoping to get out there into the world. So that's kind of one, one other aspect of this. And then the, the final thing I want to say about whenever there's a leak, we, we talk about in the kind of intelligence world, the long-term damage this, sorts of, this sort of thing does to intelligence collection. It's very difficult to quantify this or be specific about it, but th this comes up in debates within government about when should we release information for the purposes of influencing policy elsewhere. So the, the United States in the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine repeated, the Biden administration repeatedly said, Putin is about to invade. He's like, make it, you know, he's about to do it. It's going to be now, right? 
And that was very likely intelligence information. And some calculus was made that like, look, we got to say this publicly to try to stop it from happening. Yes, that risks. However, we're getting that information, right? That like Putin might think, hey, how did they know that? I've I told, told I know people. who I told about that. Right. right, right. Like clearly there's some issue here, but we kind of decided that it was worth it for this policy impact. But intelligence people hate this, I think, instinctively, because the first thing you want to do is protect not just your current collection, but your ability to collect in the future. And if a future, if there was like a person out there who's thinking, you know what, maybe I should give this information to the United States government. And then they see this random guy on Discord just tossing this information to the Internet, then maybe that person's like, oh, this could be very scary for me if it gets in the wrong hands. It looks like. The United States government doesn't know how to protect its sensitive sources. Right. I'm out. Right. And this is something the intelligence community worries about a lot, that there's going to be a chilling effect on future collection whenever we see a leak or on, an, on purpose public release of intelligence information. So uh, I think that's another piece of this that that's out there. Um, Matt Tate in this piece uh, kind of ends with an interesting thought experiment that I, that I thought was useful. When you think about how damaging this leak was for U.S. intelligence, he said, well, how much would the United States pay to get access to this daily briefing on the Russia side, right? If we had access to the Russian daily intelligence brief, how much would we pay to get it? And I think the answer is a lot, That's what, you know? And so that suggests that like having this stuff out there is potentially quite damaging, that, you know, an adversary would be willing to put a lot of effort into acquiring this information. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, you know, one of those situations where we did, well, not we, but one of our citizens did the work for them by, by providing this. And that's that's really the kind of tragic part of you. I mean, I, I agree with that. I think that governments would pay a lot to have this type of information, particularly if it was on an ongoing basis. You know, the nice thing about about this leak was that it was a, a tranche of documents, and, and hopefully we don't have sort of copycat uh, leakers and things like that. It was just a, it was a, a one-off situation. But you're right. I think that's a, that's a good way of thinking about it. Like, this would be particularly valuable. Um, for the United States, if it was on the Russian side or China side or, or anyone, really. I agree with that. Do you ever watch the Jimmy Kimmel show? No. Jimmy Kimmel um, has this feud with Matt Damon. And at the end of every show, Jimmy Kimmel says, and sorry, we ran out of time. We've got to bump Matt Damon to, to next time. <laughs> so I feel like because we, we talked about so much good stuff in this particular episode, uh, maybe what we should do is bump the social identity and ontological security yet another week. Uh, to next week's pod, just so we can give it full justice and it's due. I, I really don't want to, you know, and I think you would agree with me, Jeff. You you want an in-depth, really sort of detailed conversation about ontological security, don't you? Well, I'm certainly not going to object to bumping it, bumping it a week. Fair enough. I think we could at least agree on that part. Yeah. Uh, well, th thanks, Marcus, for for joining me today. You know, this was a pleasure. We we covered a lot of territory. I always like getting your take on intelligence matters. Uh, it's one of the few things, I mean, one of the things that you know really well. And so I thank you, Jeff. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Marcus. If anyone wants to to send us a note, let us know what they'd like us to talk about. We are available at cheaptalkpod at gmail.com or go to speakpipe.com slash cheaptalk. And we will see you next time. Thanks. I'm good. Another week, another marathon for you, right? You know, Jeff, um... I am I am fresh back from Boston. I ran uh, the Boston Marathon on Monday, and you are correct. If if the the longtime listeners might remember, two weeks ago I ran the Paris Marathon, uh, and I did okay. I ran three hours and three minutes, but I did not do sort of great. I wanted to run under under three hours, 
uh, and I found that to be a difficult race. Took two weeks to kind of like reset the body, recover, did some just like very short, kind of easy runs. And I went into this marathon on Monday really not expecting much, right? I didn't know. I'd never run a marathon, uh, two marathons in, in two weeks before. Everything I read on the internet was basically like, you are a complete fool to even tempt such a thing. Like, do not run two marathons in two weeks. That's a recipe for disaster. And a litany of stories of people who attempted this, and it did not go well for them. So all of the objective kind of like empirical evidence pointed to the the notion that this is going to be a tough day for uh, Professor Holmes. Nevertheless, uh, I just went out there kind of like, you know, threw caution to the wind, as they say. Uh, and I ended up like running incredibly well. I ran 258 something like 258.40 or something like that. So under three hours. And not only that, I have this like horrid history with the Boston Marathon. The first time I ran it in 2004, it was like 85 degrees and sunny. Last year, it was like 45 degrees, but sunny. And I didn't have any sunscreen. And I got like the worst sunburn of my life. You might remember this. Uh, but anyway, so it was, it was a good weather day in the sense that it was kind of chilly. It was cold. It was raining. And those are the conditions I, I, under which I thrive. And everything just clicked. And so all of this conventional wisdom about not running two marathons in two weeks and, you know, uh, how, how much of a disaster it was going to be, it, it didn't happen. And I had, a, I had a great time. It was a fantastic weekend up in Boston. Uh, it was just great. It was fantastic. And I'm very sore today, obviously, uh, hard going up and down stairs. But it was really, it was really a, great, a great race. So I'm, I'm, really, I'm really quite happy. Well, congratulations on the, on the great time, Marcus. That's impressive. But one thing, Jeff, that I want to point out that it does not make me happy. I have this yearly tradition of on the way home in Logan Airport, I go to Legal Seafoods. Now, now listeners who are in the New England area know Legal Seafoods is an institution. And, of course, it's not as good as it once was because it used to be small and just like one restaurant. And now it's this big chain and, and so on and so forth. But it's still pretty good. Like the quality is, is pretty good. And I wanted to get a lobster roll because you can't get a lobster roll in Williamsburg. There's no, there's no lobster rolls here. No. I mean, you had to get a lobster, you had to cook it, you had to make it. It's not, it's not the same thing. So I wanted a nice lobster roll. I kid you not, the price of the lobster roll, and, and for the listeners who don't know what a lobster roll is, it's a hot dog bun, okay? A hot dog bun with lobster and like mayonnaise and celery and some seasoning, okay? They wanted $49 for a lobster roll. It's a sandwich. Like a lobster is a sandwich. It's, it's a hot dog type sandwich. It just happens to be lobster. And I was so floored by this. Like, how in the world can legal seafoods be charging $50 for a lobster roll? Was this not your normal order at legal seafoods? Or have they, have they jacked up the price? Norm- so they normally- jacked up the price. Okay. I, I don't remember what the price was last time. It's always been expensive. But $49 is, to me, astronomical. It's inflation, man. It's, it's unfortunate. So yeah. what it meant was I could only get two and not the usual three that I normally get. <laughs> That was a joke, listeners. Well done. Uh, well done. That, but that's, yeah. I told this story just leading up to that little little joke. But anyway, yeah. So other than the, 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 the lobster roll problem, what I should have done is just gone to a restaurant in town and not at the airport. I mean, everything's inflated at the airport, sure. of course, because you're a captive audience, et cetera. Uh, but I should have just gone to some, some you know, hole-in-the-wall type place in Boston, of which there are many. And I had a great lobster roll before going to the airport, but it didn't occur to me to do that. While we're talking about marathons, I think we should we should – come back to the issue we raised in the last episode about a treadmill designed to prepare you for running on cobblestones. We did talk about this. So you mocked, you mocked this idea. So as you recall, I, I mocked you vociferously. As you recall last time you were complaining about 
um, your your performance in the Paris Marathon, and you, you said you know it's these cobblestones that they're not you're not used to running on cobblestones. And I thought, well, why don't we design a treadmill that feels like cobblestones in order yeah. to make this easier for people training for marathons? And you said that's the, the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I think is the is the I exact, thought it was ridiculous. I thought it was totally quote. absurd. Yeah. But in preparing the show notes for the episode, as as I do every week diligently, I came across a patent for a cobblestone treadmill. And this the link is in the show notes for last time, and I will put them back <laughs> in the link this in the in the show notes this time, now that I've mentioned it on the podcast, because everyone needs to look at this. So this is a this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's a treadmill. This is from 2009. A treadmill designed to simulate the feeling of running on cobblestones. And uh, I think an apology is is due. I do. I I, I I I do apologize. And my only disappointment is that it's not real yet, right? It's just the patent, right? So if if there was, you know, if there was a Kickstarter or if there was some type of, you know, like prototype, I would say to the listeners, like, if you're looking for a, like a Christmas present or a holiday present for Professor Holmes. This might be a good sort of like create a GoFundMe page and we could raise some money and get myself the cobblestone treadmill. But it sounds like it doesn't even exist yet. Yeah. It's just yeah, that's in, a good in theory, in theory, a cobblestone treadmill could be could be a thing. Yeah. But we have to wait for I mean, the market's got to be huge for something like that. But it wasn't I, so crazy an idea, I'm saying, that someone didn't think of it and file a patent on it. That, that's to be all fair, though, to be fair, I'm sure we could go down a rabbit hole of crazy patents that that's true. are that's never going to see the light of day. You know, it's like these are these are these are lawyers who do this. Uh, I'm not. To, I don't. I, I, I don't want to fund of lawyers who do this as a living. But my understanding is that there's a sort of cottage industry of people who like sort of think weird things and then patent them on the hopes that like one day like that might become like a reality and that it's, it's profitable and so on and so forth. So just because there's a patent doesn't mean it's coming out tomorrow. But I do apologize. You were correct. There is there is uh, 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 some evidence that such an idea is out there in the world. So this was patented by. Uh, a guy named Volker Van Detten from Is it like one of like 10,000 patents that he El has? Segundo, California filed in 2006. And I'm Googling him now. Okay. He's Riveting conf- for the listeners. Well, I'll cut this part later. He's the owner of a company called resource concepts. Oh, resource, a- concepts. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> resource concepts. I'm looking at his LinkedIn right now. I don't know, man. I'm not sure we'll be seeing this cobblestone pa- uh, cobblestone yeah. treadmill. I, mean, I should soon. email the guy. We should. Yeah. Send, you know what we should do is send him a link to the pod, and he'll get a kick out of this because he <laughs> he, he for sure like is really. It's probably like this is like his main dream to create this cobblestone treadmill, and he'll be delighted that we we talked about it. And, and we you know we came up with it on our own in parallel, and he yeah. came up with his patent, right? You know, so I'm willing to give him all the credit for this. We, once we see this on the market. Um, yeah. Maybe he'll come on the come on the pod, give us a little interview about he his thinking. He could be our thinking. first guest. Yeah. That'd be fantastic. 